When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the View From Somewhere podcast. I'm producer Ramona Martinez. Just a quick reminder that the View From Somewhere is on tour. We'll be in New York November 19th, 20th, and 21st, and L.A. December 5th. Get the details at viewfromsomewhere.com. And while you're there, do us a solid and help us get to the end of the season by clicking on the donate button. Also, this podcast is serialized, so if you like this episode, you might want to skip back to the very start and take it from there. It was February 2017, and I was all over the news. It's been covered by The Washington Post, The Daily Beast, and I'm sure much more mainstream press will soon follow. Until last week, Lewis Wallace was the only out transgender reporter at the public radio show Marketplace. Then he published a blog post on the website Medium. Medium, raising questions about the viability of neutrality in the face of a post-fact administration, and imploring journalists to fight back. The whole thing felt surreal. The story was, I got suspended from my job at Marketplace, a national business show that airs on NPR stations, about a week into Trump's administration. It was over a blog post I wrote challenging the idea of objective journalism as a transgender reporter and as a white person committed to anti-racism. And when I refused to take this post down, I got called into a meeting I'll never forget. It was a Monday morning. I put on a button-down and a tie, rode the train to Grand Central Station like I always did. But instead of walking over to the marketplace offices where I worked, I walked a few blocks to this bistro where the VP of the company had asked to meet me. And then when you went in that morning, morning, you called me afterwards, and they had completely blindsided you, and there was the, the big, big boss sitting there. This is my mom, Raven McCrory. As I recounted to her that day, I walked in, calmly removed my jacket, sat down in a chair next to Deborah Clark, who's the big, big boss, and a woman from HR. And apparently, I mean, what I remember is that you walked in, and they basically said you're fired with no consideration of giving you real reasons or making suggestions for how you might stay on or anything like that. And so it was pretty shocking to you and to me and to, to everyone, you know, who knows you. And my mom, you know, she's a little biased. Clark actually did give reasons in that conversation. She said, I clearly didn't want to do the kind of journalism they do at Marketplace, which was weird because the whole thing was about my personal blog, not my journalism at Marketplace. Anyhow, Deb Clark also told me this messed up story that I still think about all the time because it was kind of emblematic of the whole reason I took a stand on this. She told me that when she was a young reporter, a journalism student, she'd been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. She's British and white, which is important here. She had a professor who told her that she needed to choose, be a journalist or be an activist. You can't be both. So she chose journalism and left the anti-apartheid movement. 
And for her, this was like a point of pride, as if she was saying, look where it got me. But even having a choice there is a privilege. Obviously, black journalists living under apartheid couldn't just choose to opt out of that struggle. I still think about that moment. There's a reason I'm able to tell you all of this now. They had offered you at the meeting a non-disclosure agreement, essentially, that said, if you won't talk about this, then we'll give you whatever. I've forgotten what it was, money or a severance pay. I don't know what it was. It was barely anything. It was two weeks' pay. Okay, two weeks' pay. Oh, whoop-de-doo. And, um, but you rejected that um, because you wanted to be able to talk about it and not because you wanted to have a lawsuit, but just because you wanted to, to be free to express yourself. I had decided to go public because I thought my story had much larger implications in the world of journalism. And I was able to do that because I have so many allies and a financial safety net in my family of origin, which a lot of people, especially transgender people, don't have. So because I could afford to, I put the severance offer in the recycling bin. Yeah, I, I like to think that they kind of misestimated me, you know, in terms of I can I am so sweet and then I can be such a thorn, you know, <laughs> and I think that I was a thorn in their side after that and from then on, <laughs> not out of anything personal, but because I just really thought that they were wrong and that the way in which they were wrong was a symbol of a much larger issue. Yeah, which was quite wonderful to see. This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace, your host and a 35-year-old who still calls their mom in a crisis. Today, we're jumping back to this moment after I got fired from public radio in 2017. I did get media coverage. The fact that I'm white and had a national position also meant I was given the benefit of the doubt by the journalists who covered me. And I know for a fact that lots of people of color, black and indigenous people have lost journalism jobs and opportunities because of this oppressive environment and then not been believed. Lots of people have signed non-disclosure agreements for various good reasons, and lots of similar stories to mine have not been told. So point being, the lens was on me, but that felt kind of wrong. I knew I wasn't the first person to be fired for not being perceived as impartial. But when and why did this become a fireable offense for journalists? And who else had it happened to? In the weeks and months that followed, I was doing media appearances and freelancing. And then in between, I was starting to work on a book about this history. I was always at the library, trying to find these other journalists from the past who'd been fired or punished. One day, I came across this article in the New York Times, 1996. The headline was so perfect. It said, gay reporter wants to be an activist. Here's the opening lines of this article, reported from Tacoma, Washington. To labor leaders in this old blue-collar port, a shot-and-beer stronghold, Sandy Nelson is an unlikely hero, a lesbian socialist journalist. But to the top editors at the News Tribune, where Ms. Nelson works, she is a walking conflict of interest whose off-duty activities threaten the credibility of journalism. You really never had anybody come up and say, I'm, I'm going to drop my subscription to your paper because... Uh, 
I think that you're biased. This is her, Sandy Nelson. She lives in Colorado now, works a job doing technical editing. Back in the late 70s and 80s, she confirms she was a rabble-rousing lesbian socialist and a pretty conventional newspaper journalist. Um, I mean, there's people that didn't like certain things that I that I wrote about. Like, uh, I'm trying to think back in years and years ago, I wrote stuff on pagan Christmas and things like that. And that I think that upset people more than anything else I ever did. Just, just the fact that I was uh, presenting uh, the perspective of people that were not you know, fundamentalist Christians at Christmas time about how they feel about the season. And we had everybody from, you know, pagans, witches, and, uh, you know, Seventh-day Adventists to Jews and everybody else, you know. And so they just didn't want any other ideas or diversity of opinion presented. So that's very funny. That reminds me of my sort of story about that, because similarly, I, you know, like you was accused of this ethical violation, but I, I had never had an audience complaint about bias in my stories, except for I uh, did a story where I made a joke. This is on the radio, so you're talking in your own voice. I made a joke at the expense of lawyers mm-hmm. um, and really pissed off the uh, li- prof- legal profession <laughs> as a group. Aren't they used to it by now? <laughs> Pretty thin-skinned, huh? That's what I thought. <laughs> Get over yourselves. But, I, you know. <laughs> we can't have a sense of humor anymore. Nelson had studied journalism at the University of Washington, inspired to be a journalist by the Watergate scandal coverage and by her socialist politics. Well, I guess I came from the 70s school of thought that journalism was where you did change the world. And you did make the world better. And actually, that's how journalism was uh, all the way through the history of this country. And while she was studying and then doing her first full-time journalism job out of school, she was going to protests, signing petitions. This was pretty fundamental to her identity. I've pretty much followed my uh, experience of oppression to what I thought would be actual solutions to it. In 1983, she joined the News Tribune in Tacoma. When people found out I was an activist, my, when I say people, I mean my employers, I never hid that. Um, I, you know, I was, full disclosure was something I always did. And most of the time they didn't care because I was so active. I knew what was going on better than a lot of other reporters uh, that were living, you know, inside this uh, shell. And so they were happy when they got good stories out of it. She was good at her job, too. She became the Tribune's education reporter and continued her activism. It was protected by our union contract, which said that uh, your off-duty activities, uh, as long as you weren't competing with the paper, like as long as I wasn't going and writing for a competitor, which is, that's fair. And uh, um, that was all pretty much the limit was. So because of this union contract, objectivity was defined not in terms of your off-duty activities. It was what you did on the job. It was a set of techniques for journalism and not an identity. And Nelson largely agreed with those techniques, with the idea of keeping herself out of her news stories. As long as you don't distort the news, as long as your political views don't distort your coverage and become an editorial, make a news story an editorial, then that's, that's all that really should be required of 
of anybody. But then things took a turn. In 1986, a big conglomerate, McClatchy, bought the Tacoma News Tribune from local owners, busted up the union, fired everyone. They made us all reapply for our jobs. So they hired me back. She was kind of surprised they hired her back since they knew about her socialism. But Sandy kept doing her thing. If there was a union strike in town, she'd spend time on the picket line with the workers. She went every Thursday to help women seeking abortions get to clinics safely. And she got involved with a gay rights referendum in the city. And all of this wasn't a problem until it was. I basically got called into a meeting at the end of the day by the managing editor and told that they were going to move me to the copy desk at least until after the election so that um, the newspaper could maintain its appearance of objectivity. And, uh, you know, because I had somehow compromised that. And so I, of course, disagreed with that. And um, but I just decided, well, I'm going to go home and figure out how to fight it. They weren't firing her. They were just telling her she couldn't report anymore. And it wasn't just until the election, it was until she agreed to stop doing activism. But her reporting mattered to her, and, shocker, so did her rights as a gay woman. The Constitution doesn't say everybody except journalists have the right to be citizens. So I really wanted it resolved. I was tired of um, kind of living where I was doing this balancing act all the time, and I just, one way or the other, I wanted it resolved. Just how far a news organization can go in restricting a reporter's off-the-job activities soon may be tested in the courts. In Tacoma, Washington, the American Civil Liberties Union has filed a lawsuit against the Morning News Tribune. The ACLU says the newspaper violated the free speech rights of a reporter who is active in the local gay rights movement. From member station KPLU, Paula Whistle reports. Sandy Nelson now works the 4 to midnight shift as a copy editor. Three years ago, she was a morning News Tribune reporter, covering the education beat by day and spending her off-duty nights and weekends campaigning for a gay rights law in Tacoma. Even though she wasn't covering events she was personally involved in, her high-profile role in the campaign prompted newspaper managers to yank her off her reporting beat and put her in the less visible job on the copy desk. After the election, she was told if she gave up her political activities, she could have her reporting job back. Nelson refused. That's like having a gun put to your head and told, do you want to exercise your civil rights or do you want to have this particular job at our newspaper? Nelson says she sees no reason why she should be denied the same free speech rights guaranteed other U.S. citizens. I don't consider that my constitutional rights are negotiable. Among other things, she argued that everyone had off-duty activities, Boy Scouts, the PTA, whatever, which are political in their own way. The newspaper argued its credibility was at stake, that reporters must not become part of the story. But she doesn't think this was really about credibility. It really was just a way to control me. Uh, they don't like union activists. They don't like um, people who don't just do what they're told, like they tried to get me to do. And she fought this case for seven years, still going to work every day on the copy desk. So um, I just, you know, people have gone through a lot worse than I have. 
to survive something like this. Nelson argued that her off-duty activities shouldn't have a bearing on her work, that she had rights as a citizen to free speech that an employer shouldn't be able to deny. The case went to the Washington Supreme Court in 1997, and she lost. She appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. And that was the end of that. Nelson was at the News Tribune almost 20 years, seven of which she spent fighting. But at one point not that long ago, Sandy Nelson had the right to be both a journalist and an activist because she was in a strong union with a contract that protected that right. Breaking up the union made journalists like her who were standing up for their own rights as humans more vulnerable. I think the whole idea of people not expected to live their lives and do things and express their opinion is so antiquated now. Um, It was a phony idea to start with. It was usually a control mechanism. Uh, They did that during the McCarthy era. They would basically get rid of people who they thought or suspected were leftists and then say it was just objectivity. You know, this stuff goes way back as far as a tool that was being used to control people's off-duty lives. This control mechanism Sandy Nelson is talking about, it goes far back. But how far? This question obsessed me. I read all the histories of journalism and objectivity I could find, and I found out that it really wasn't until the 1920s that these ideas about objective or impartial reporting started to be codified in journalism guides and policies. But even these early codes were about the journalists reporting, not about the journalists' political identity or off-duty activities. Right around the time that journalism was adopting these codes, journalists were doing labor organizing for the first time, forming the Newspaper Guild to fight for their rights as workers. And I was reading along one day in historian Michael Shudson's book, Discovering the News, when he mentions this guy, Morris Watson. In 1934, Watson was working for the Associated Press. And he was a lead organizer with the new Newspaper Guild chapter. At that time, the heads of the AP and other big publishers were having meetings, making statements about how it was inappropriate for journalists to be organizing unions. The bosses didn't like it. And right then, it was like these publishers had a light bulb go off. They thought, oh, what if we accused the workers of bias? of not being able to be objective due to their union involvement. And Morris Watson got fired from the AP for that. Just like Sandy Nelson, he was persecuted not for his reporting, but for his supposed inability to be impartial or appear impartial on the job. This was the first instance I could find that a reporter was fired under the claim that the reporter was not objective or couldn't be. But of course, he wasn't even really fired for that. He was fired for organizing a union. Watson sued the AP, and that went to the Supreme Court, and he won, because his lawyers could easily show that he was targeted as a union organizer, which was protected by new labor laws. He got his job back, although he later left and had a long career editing the paper for the Longshoremen's Union on the West Coast. Point being, Objectivity was only around as a code of professional ethics for a few years 
before it was first used as a weapon against people who resisted the status quo. And it's been used that way ever since. Sandy Nelson was just another in a long line. And maybe so was I. I loved talking to her. It was inspiring. But it also felt kind of sad because, you know, I didn't really expect to be fired over expressing what I thought was such a basic idea about privilege and objectivity. And it just felt sad to realize that it's been happening like this. You know, I shouldn't have been surprised. I think it was my own naivete, but I really was surprised by the decision to, you know, by the people who employed me to focus on, um, like, a blog post that I wrote that a few people read, you know, (laughs) and to sort of go above and beyond in the censorship and self-policing from this place of fear that was like, why is the thing that you're afraid of right now your one transgender reporter who has a blog that nobody reads um you know when i mean look at the real um challenges to journalism today (laughs) like well you know what's also true though is that look at the way it's so structural and so institutionalized this kind of policing and i say that because look at the way the the ruling class, if you want to use that term, um, has managed to keep us fighting each other. You know, if you assert your rights, you're taking something away from me. And that's not really true, you know, but they, that's how, that's how the whole structure of capitalism maintains itself by keeping working people fighting amongst themselves instead of kind of looking around and going, wait a minute, who's our enemy here? Journalists are not the enemy, though big media organizations like McClatchy and Sandy's case or the AP with Morris Watson or American Public Media with me can operate that way, caring more about maintaining themselves and their public image than protecting real journalism and the people who produce it. And the environment of fear and self-policing that kind of corporate mindset creates among journalists isn't a coincidence. It's a mode of social control designed to keep journalists from organizing together for better wages and work conditions, and to keep journalism from standing in solidarity with oppressed groups of people. Journalists have been told that they have to give up their rights to free expression in order to do their work. And so often, they're spending more time nitpicking each other over the appearance of objectivity than protecting each other from violence and oppression. So I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a dose of solidarity in this story. Next time on The View From Somewhere. It was not ladylike to don picket signs and march up and down. It thrilled me. I never minded getting out there on the picket line, and I enjoyed going to jail, even though I knew that the woman's editor shivered at the thought. We'll meet an antidote to all this. 1930s and 1940s labor organizer and groundbreaking black woman journalist Marvell Cook. Come back for that. Y'all are great. I'm Lewis Raven Wallace. You can read more about all this stuff in my book, which is also called The View From Somewhere, available wherever you get your books. This podcast is distributed by Critical Frequency and produced by the indomitable Ramona Martinez. 
Howdy, y'all. Hope to see you this week in New York. We have events Tuesday at Barnard, Wednesday at McNally Jackson in Williamsburg, and Thursday at The Strand. The details are all at viewfromsomewhere.com. Our theme music is composed by Dogbotic. Additional music comes from Poddington Bear. Our logo is by Billy D. And our editorial consultant on this episode is Ashley Dejan. We could not have done this podcast without our Kickstarter supporters. We're an independent podcast, and we pay for all technical and production costs ourselves. You can be part of changing the future of journalism by chipping in today. And you can get rad posters by Billy D, too. Go to viewfromsomewhere.com and click on the donate button. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Hey, y'all. We're going up to New York this week. Damn it. I'm going to do this without freaking out about reading.